0: All right, well, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity we have to come together and to study your word. Lord, I pray that this time would be a time that um, we can use to sharpen each other, a time that we can use to see what you have to tell us, um, where you have to convict us, and Lord, where you have to draw us to yourself. And Lord, we pray that you would do all of that this morning and that your word would be spoken in truth. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're continuing Colossians today, so go ahead and turn there if you haven't already. We are going to try to finish Colossians chapter 3 today and kind of creep over in chapter 4 a little bit. So our text for this morning is Colossians 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. Would anyone volunteer to read that text for us this morning? Colossians 3, verses 18 through
1: 4, 1. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with thy service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bond servant <coughs> what is just and fair, knowing that you also are a master in heaven. Amen. All right.
0: Thank you, Leroy. So I don't normally do this, but this morning I'm actually going to start with a little story. All right. And uh, I know y'all like stories. So that's one of the reasons I'm doing it. And I like telling stories because I think is it's fun. It it's a true story. It is a true story. So um, a lot of you guys know that I like to go to the weight room when I'm not you know, studying studiously in my seminary classes or preparing for church stuff. Right? I enjoy being in the weight room. I enjoy pumping iron. It's really fun. And one of the things that I do when I'm doing that is I'm usually listening to lectures, uh, RTS lectures from other professors. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but RTS actually has a huge library of classes that are recorded that are online that you can listen to for free. Um, If you have the RTS app on your your phone, if you have a smartphone, you can listen to these full classes on Old Testament, New Testament, theology, all these kinds of things. And so I enjoy listening to those while I am listening. And one of the courses that I was listening to, I think it was probably two or three months ago, was a course on pastoral counseling. And I got to listen to all the lectures that this professor gave for this course at the RTS campus in Charlotte. And in this course, this pastor was telling a story about a, rather a kind of nightmare counseling experience that he had when he was in pastoral ministry. And so I want to share that story with you this morning because it illustrates something that we're going to talk about today. This pastor is telling a story. He's in his office one morning, just a normal Tuesday morning or something, and a woman comes into his office. She sits down and she starts crying and she says, Pastor, he said, I am in big trouble. My family's in huge trouble. We need some help. Okay, this woman, she, she was a member of this PCA church. All right, She had a husband and she had kids. And she proceeded to tell the pastor that her husband had gone on a business trip to Las Vegas a few weeks ago or months ago or something. And the pastor, or the, pastor the husband had gone on this trip to Las Vegas and he had met a woman at a bar while he was there. And they had hit it off. And they'd spent a few nights together while they were in Las Vegas. And the husband had come home. And after a few weeks, he began to miss this other woman and invited that woman to fly to his hometown and live in his house. Do you get that? So the woman was explaining that she was now in a situation where it was in this house her husband, her kids, herself, and a girlfriend from Las Vegas. And she came to the pastor and said, "What on earth am I going to do? Now, this is in a PCA church. Right? I'm not making this up. This actually happened." And the pastor is like, "What on earth am I going to do about this?" So they he goes to the husband, has conversations with him, like, "What you're doing is wrong." You know, brought him to scripture. He brought the elders over. You know, they brought two or three. They they did the whole you know Matthew 18 thing. Husband was unrepentant. He wanted to have this woman there, and so. What ended up happening was the pastor and the elders said to the wife and to the kids, they said, you guys need to get out of here. You guys need to go live with family. You know, this is a destructive situation. He's unrepentant. We need to enact some biblical separation here. So they got him out. They went, go live with family. And the pastor thought, okay, now how am I going to deal with this man? He's a member of the church. We got to figure out what we're going to do here. And it was about a week after his family left that the husband called the pastor and said, hey, I'm sorry. You know, I repent. I was wrong. I shouldn't have done this. I want my family back. I want this Las Vegas woman out of my house. And the pastor's like, are you sure? Like, are you serious? Are you just, you know, making stuff up? Are you, are you seriously repentant? And he said, yes, I'm repentant. So this is a crazy story, right? So the pastor gets his associate pastor Mm -hmm. They go to this man's house. They come in the front door. The, hu- the husband guy, he's in the kitchen, and he says, hey, the woman's downstairs. Go get her out, she won't leave. So they go down the stairs, they go downstairs, and laying on the living room floor watching TV is this young woman, and she's mostly naked. There's drugs in the air, and she's eating SpaghettiOs out of a can. <laughs> And the pastor is like, you know, trying to cover her up with his hands. He doesn't want to look at her. And he's like, you need to leave. The guy does not want you here anymore. Get out of his house. And she wouldn't leave. She just kept laying there, basically ignoring him, watching TV, eating her SpaghettiOs. The pastor continues to press her. Finally, he threatens to call the police to get her out of there. And he finally gets her to get up. And they start going upstairs. She's got her suitcase. She's going to get dressed upstairs. She walks through the kitchen as the two pastors are escorting her out and she sees the husband sitting at the table. And in one motion, she grabs a giant phone book off the table and whacks him across the face and draws this huge bloody scratch across his face. And he gets really angry. The husband's angry at this. So he tries to grab her. She dodges the grab and runs out the front door. And then the husband runs out the front door after her And then the two pastors are like, well, what are we going to do? So they run after her, too. So you end up with this crazy sight. You can imagine this. A half-naked woman running down the neighborhood with a guy in, you know, a white tank top and sweatpants chasing her. And then two guys in suits chasing both of them. (laughs) It was just an amazing, strange sight. And the neighbors called the cops because, of course, they were like, what on earth is going on? There's, There's something wrong here. Cops show up just as one of the pastors had tackled the woman and got her down to stop her from getting away. And the cops come up. They try to rectify the situation. The woman ends up slapping one of the cops, and then she's arrested for assaulting an officer, and they bring her to jail. The pastors go back to the church. They sit down in the office, and they're like, I'm glad that's over. She's gone. She's out of the house. We finally got rid of her. Now the husband can we can get meet with the husband and we can try to fix the family situation, bring the wife and kids back, figure out how we are going to make this right again. It's got to do it slowly, but we're going to figure this out. Pastor decides that the next day that he wants to go talk to this woman and he wants to get her out of town first of all. He wants to get her back to Las Vegas. The church has got money to send her back. He goes to the police station. He asks to see her and the police officer says, "Oh, she's not here anymore. She's gone." And he said, "What do you mean she's gone? She was arrested yesterday. How can she be gone?" Well, she was bailed out. The pastor says, well, who bailed her out? That's right, it was the husband. The husband bailed his Las Vegas girlfriend out, the one he wanted out of the house the previous day, the one who was on drugs and laying in front of the TV and had wrecked his whole family. He bailed her out and brought her back to his house. This is a true story. If you want to hear the whole story and all the details, you can go and listen to that RTS class on the app. But this was at a PCA church, PCA members. I don't know how long ago it was, but this is a true story. And here's the reason why I tell it. Okay, it's pretty pretty crazy. Here's why I tell it. Because this man, this husband, was trying to live his life and structure his relationships and structure his family based entirely on his own sinful desires. Zero care for his family, zero love for his wife. All he wanted to do was gratify his own lusts. And he destroyed his family and he destroyed his life in the process. And we look at the situation from the outside and we say, what on earth? This is crazy. How could anybody do this? That's that's a fairly simple answer how anyone could do it because any of us could do it. When we get caught up in sin. When we get caught up in not ordering our lives after how the scripture has prescribed us to do it. How we get caught ordering our relationships in ways that the scripture has not mandated. and we start doing everything based on what we want. It can happen to anybody. Now, as we sort of make a transition here... and Yeah, do you have a question?
1: It's just, this is a, a, an extreme... But nonetheless, a microscopic uh, illustration of the fact that what happens in Vegas doesn't stay in that. <laughs> yeah, That's right. That's exactly right.
0: That is exactly right. A oh, Good principle to remember. I think that's in the Bible. And second Hesitations. Yeah. Second Hesitations 3 or something. So... But Yeah, that's right. So, making a transition here into our text for today, right? The scripture here, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is giving us principles of how we are to order our relationships, how relationships are supposed to go. What are the roles for wives? What are the roles for husbands? What are the roles for children? What are the roles for parents, for servants, employees, for masters, employers, all these kinds of things? And so, what we're going to learn today is some specifics about how we are to biblically order our lives. We don't just operate our relationships based on whatever we want whatever seems right to us whatever we desire whatever our sinful lusts are we order our relationships based on how the scripture has prescribed them and one of the things I thought was kind of interesting as I was studying this text is that this is this text that we're looking at is basically the Apostle Paul's inspired exegesis of the fifth commandment honor your father and mother you know in that commandment there are the principle behind it is that we have people who are in authority, and then we have people who are under that authority. And how do those relationships work together? How do the superiors handle the relationship toward the inferior in authority? How does the inferior in authority honor the person who is the superior in authority, in God-given authority? And so this is sort of Paul sort of exegeting some of these uh, principles from the fifth commandment. And we spent a lot of time on the fifth commandment. Uh, when we were doing the Ten Commandments series before we did Colossians. So we won't spend a lot of time talking about the commandment itself, but I want to drill down on some of these relationships and talk about what's going on in this passage. What is Paul commending? What is he not saying? What is he saying? And uh, what does that mean for us? Okay, So there are three major relationships Paul's dealing with here in our text. The first one is marriage. He's going to deal with the role of the wife. He's going to deal with the role of the husband. We'll talk about both of those. He's going to deal with uh, the role of children, the role of parents, and he's going to deal with the role of servants and masters. So three kinds of relationships that we have going on here. All right, so let's look at the text and start making our way through it here. Verse 18, as we read just a moment ago, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. We're going to talk about husbands in just a second, all right? So, but we're going to talk about wives right now. Paul says, wives submit to your husbands. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, as we talk about what Paul is saying here, he does not say wives submit to every single male person on the planet. You notice he doesn't say that? He doesn't say women submit to men. That's not in here. He's talking specifically to wives, people in a marital relationship. And he says, wives, submit to not all men, not most men, not some men. Wives, submit to your husbands. This is a marriage relationship that he's discussing here. Some people have come to this text and say, you know, it says, wives, submit to your husbands. Therefore, m- women must submit to men and everything. If a woman's walking down the street and a man says, get me a- some water or make me a sandwich, women have to do it. No, that's not what he's saying. Right? He's saying, submit to your own husbands. So that's, first of all, what I want to point out here. This is a marriage relationship that Paul is discussing. Wives, submit to your husbands. Secondly, looking at that word, Submit wives submit to your husbands. The word submit that we see here in Colossians 3, which we also see in Ephesians 5, which we also see in 1 Peter 3, and all other places where Paul says for wives to submit to their husbands, that word submit. right? For many people today, especially in our modern secularized culture, the word submit, especially as it relates to marriage, is almost a four-letter word. It's almost a swear word. It's an evil word. It's a word that means that wives ought to make themselves doormats for their husbands, that they ought to be ordered around, that they are perhaps even inferior to the husband in worth before God. And just before we go any farther with this, let me make it clear. Paul, in this passage, the scripture as a whole does not prescribe the role of leadership to the husband or the role of submission to the wife on the basis of the fact that the woman is less than the man. That is absolutely false. Paul explicitly in the scripture says that in God's eyes and especially in the role of salvation, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile or circumcised or uncircumcised or male or female. We are all the same in God's eyes. There's no inferiority between a man and a woman. We are equal in God's eyes. That's not the case in every religion. This whole past week, I spent uh, in an intensive class on Islam at RTS. There's a required course for the Master of Divinity, a two-credit course on Islam that we all have to take. And uh, I took it as an intensive and did the whole thing in a week. And when we were studying Islam, it was very interesting. And Islam traditions, what are called the Hadith, Muhammad is said to have taught that 80% of the souls in hell will be women. And why is that? Well, Muhammad answers. He says 80% of the souls in hell will be women because of the deficiency in their brains. Now, Islam doesn't have a very high view of women, as you can see. Muhammad certainly didn't. For them... The reason why the wife submits to the husband in Islam is because the woman is actually less than the husband. The woman is worth less to God than a man. That is not the case in scripture. Paul is not saying wives submit to your husbands because your husbands are smarter. Sometimes husbands are not as smart as the wives, right? Some men are not as smart as women. Sometimes I think Jordan's a lot smarter than me in a lot of cases. He does not say to submit because the wife is less than, all right? However, Paul does say, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, meaning that in God's eyes, this is right. This is how God has ordered the family. This is how God has structured the relationship, that the wives are to acquiesce to the authority and the leadership of their husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In other words, not as is fitting in Paul's eyes. Paul's not telling him to do this because Paul thinks it's a good idea because it's fitting in God's eyes because this is how God has ordered it wives submit to husbands as is fitting in the Lord now of course of course this principle that the wife submits to the husband because God has prescribed it means that when the wife submits to the husband what she's actually doing is submitting to the authority of God because God is her highest authority as he is for all people men included and so what that means is that if the husband is, is leading the family in a direction of sin or requiring the wife in some situation to do something that God forbids or forbidding her from doing something that God commands, naturally she must, morally she must refuse to do it because she has a higher authority, namely the Almighty. So she submits to her husband, as is fitting in the Lord, But if the husband is telling her to do something that's wrong or keeping her from doing something that's right, then she doesn't have to obey in that situation because she has a higher authority, namely God, okay? Now, you don't have to turn here, but just really quickly, I want to read for you Genesis 3.16. Just listen to the words of Moses here. To the woman, God said, quote, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. The scripture predicted that this marital relationship of the wife submitting to the leadership of the husband would be problematic for sinful people. The scripture predicted this. If you look at the Hebrew, which I'm sure you all do on occasion, you will notice that When it says that your desire shall be contrary to your husband, that word desire is not a good word in Hebrew. It's actually used in the next chapter when it talks about sin has a desire for Cain. That word desire does not mean that she will love her husband. When it says your desire shall be contrary to your husband, it's saying you will want to usurp his authority. You will want to step into his shoes and take over for him and lead the family yourself. Scripture says this is going to be a problem in sinful human history. And so, wives, y'all got to watch this. Yes, Martha? What
1: version is that?
0: The version I just read from? Yeah. ESV. Okay. What does yours say?
1: Um, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you.
0: Yeah, there, there's a a preposition in the Hebrew that can be translated either way. And there the ESV is taking the word desire and they're trying to catch the negative aspect of it even in that translation if you understand the word desire as a bad desire your desire will be for the position of your husband you can take it that way so the ESV is just trying to make the the negative connotation a little more clear so anyway um uh, the scripture knew that this would be a problem in the future and likewise notice what it also says your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. Now this, I think, is talk, I think, this is my opinion, but I think that, that this part of the verse, the second part about the husband ruling over is also the warning to the husband. Because the Hebrew word for rule that's showing up here is a word um, that is closely associated with kings and domination. It's a kingly, royal word to rule, meaning... Your desire will be to usurp the authority of your husband, and your husband shall be tempted to dominate you. Your husband will be tempted to use his legitimate God-given authority to stomp on you and to abuse you. And if that's the case, if that's the warning here, then that certainly has happened in history. Men have certainly taken advantage Of this God given responsibility and have abused it. And that leads us right into what Paul says to the husbands here in verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Here, us husbands, listen up, there's two things Paul says we need to watch out for. First of all, we need to love our wives, we need to love our wives. And the simplest definition I can think of of how to make that really practical is by love, we need to put their desires and their needs before our own. We need to put the desires and the needs of our wives before ours. That is that when we as husbands are exercising our authority in the relationship, our leadership, our God-given leadership, that we are not using this leadership as a license for tyranny but rather as an opportunity to serve our wives and better our families and further the glorification of God in our lives. We put their desires and their needs above our own. We love our wives. (coughs) That's hard. Because I don't know about you, but when I find myself in a position of authority, I'm greatly tempted to use that authority to gratify my desires and fulfill my needs, not someone else's. that's what Paul is calling us to do here. We love our wives in that way. And then secondly, he says, do not be harsh with them. Do not be harsh with them. And I think what he's saying here is don't dominate. Don't use your wives as a doormat. They are not your slaves. You don't order them around. You don't speak harshly to them. What's interesting is in Islam, when they talk about the wife submitting to the husband, because they have this kind of teaching in the Quran and the Hadith as well. If you look at the Quran, I'm going to read for you here a section of it. Listen to these words that Muhammad claims Gabriel gave him from God. This is from the Quran, Surah 4, verse 34. Quote Men are the protectors and maintainers of women because Allah has given the one more strength than the other and because they support them from their means. Therefore, the righteous women are devoutly obedient and guard in the husband's absence what Allah would have them guard. As to those women whose part ye fear disloyalty and ill conduct, first, admonish them. Next, refuse to share their beds. Third, strike them. But if they return to obedience, seek not against them means of annoyance, for Allah is most high, great above you all. That's from the Quran. Notice what it says there. The husband, by the very commission of Allah, has the right, if his wife is being disobedient, to chastise her, to separate himself from her, and, most importantly and perhaps most controversially, to beat her, to strike her, to use physical violence on her to force her into submission. Now, one of the ways that we husbands can be harsh with our wives or dominate our wives, as Paul is describing here, is we can try to force our wives to be submissive husbands. We can try to do that sometimes. We can try to get in their face and yell at them, <clears throat> submit, submit, submit. Why aren't you submitting? But you know, the thing is, nowhere in the scripture are we as husbands given the permission to force our wives to become submissive. We're not permitted to do that. We can show them the word of God and under the authority of the scriptures here show them that this is their duty but we cannot force them to do anything. We certainly cannot use any kind of violence verbal or physical. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Do not dominate them. Do not use your God-given authority as a license for tyranny. This is hard sometimes. But if we're going to maintain the biblical balance here, we must heed Paul's two warnings here. Okay, So those are his words for wives and for husbands. Now he changes the relationship just a little bit. He's still focused on the family, but he moves here to give an admonition to children. Now, I won't spend a huge amount of time on this because there aren't any children in this room, but this is just good for us to know. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. I don't know if you've noticed, and I'm, let me just, well, before I talk about anything, let me just preface this. I am not a parent yet, and I know, I've heard the saying, parenting is the easiest when you don't have children, (laughs) right? Isn't that right? So I hesitate to talk about parenting whenever I'm teaching because I have zero experience parenting other than if you count helping raise my little siblings, but that's not really the same thing. So just take everything I say with a grain of salt for that reason. I'm not a parent yet, but I will say it is shocking to me how many times I'm in stores, Walmart or grocery store or whatever, and how powerful I see children are today. They are not obedient. (laughs) They have the ability to manipulate parents in ways parents don't even understand oftentimes. If they want that toy, if they want that chocolate milk or whatever it is, and they cry and scream enough and embarrass the parents enough, they can get it. I've seen that too often. Good verse to put on the wall in your kid's bedroom. Make them look at it every day, right? (laughs) Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. All right, that's my spiel on parenting. I don't have much else to say. I have no experience with it. Verse 21, let's talk about parents a little bit. Again, take what I say with a grain of salt, but here's what Paul says. Verse 21 Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, let me just clarify here. Paul addresses fathers, okay? But I think he's addressing parents in general, too. The reason he addresses fathers here is because the fathers are the head of the home, and they're the ones who are most responsible for seeing to it that God's law is promoted and the gospel is preached in the home. All right? This is the same reason why um, the fifth commandment, remember the Sabbath day, is directed to fathers because they're the heads of the household. It doesn't mean the wife doesn't have to follow the commandment but it it does mean that the father has the chief authority of making sure that it is um, practiced. So that's why father here, I think, is uh, emphasized. Nonetheless, it says fathers or parents do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I think there are a, a lot of ways that we can provoke children, a lot of ways that parents can provoke children. And the only reason I talk about this is because I do have experience with this being on the child's side of the provoking, you know, and I think all parents provoke their children from time to time, whether they realize it or not. For example, you can provoke your children when they come to you with questions about Christianity or questions about religion and you instantly shut them down and don't talk about it and you panic and you tell them to stop thinking that way. That's a way you may provoke your child because they may then, when they see your panic and see your, ah, your questioning, that can shut them down to further conversation. It can shut them down to further discussion. Don't do that. I know it's tempting, right? It's tempting. If you see your kids and they're like questioning, I wonder if Jesus really was a a human being in history. I wonder if God really exists. It can be really tempting to panic and just like get all over them and say, what What are you saying? You can't say that. Don't ever say that in this house again. It can be really tempting to do that because, you know, parents love their kids. You don't want to see them questioning. You want them to be strong in their relationship with Christ. We can provoke them by jumping on them too harshly. You can also provoke them... In other ways, by, say, not being happy with where God may be leading them in their life, where they, like, say, their vocation, the college they want to go to, or those kinds of things. But be careful about that. Be careful about that. And I'm sure you can, because we're running out of time, I don't have a lot of time to continue here, but there's other ways you can provoke your children. And just think about how, in a... A precise situation that may happen how you may be able to do that you don't want to provoke your children because they get discouraged they get discouraged in the surety of God's calling on their life that God may be calling them to go do something you might be well I'm not sure about that that could question whether they that could question God's calling that he may legitimately have on them they could get discouraged in the fact that that they don't think you love them anymore because you attack them for something that they believe and be careful about that too So parents, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now in verse 22, Paul makes the transition to the third relationship this morning. And that's the relationship between servants and masters. Servants and masters. Now we don't have slaves and servants in our American culture today. And the scripture is not promoting the idea of slaves and servants and masters and that kind of thing. But what the scripture is doing here is it's saying if you find yourself in the situation of being a slave, here's how you're to act so you can glorify God even in that situation. But because we don't have slaves and servants today, the principles here I want you to know apply to employees and employers. Because all of us, well, unless you're self-employed, all of us work for somebody. We all have masters in our life to some extent. Even I mean, and you can maybe, if you're retired, just think about what you did have, or you can think about your your um, servant master relationship as maybe being something like the elders of the church, or some other relationship. Maybe it's the government. There are all kinds of situations in which we find ourselves as people who serve someone higher than us in authority. And here are the principles that Paul gives. First of all, for the sermons. Verse 22, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. As a servant, or as an employee, as we would call it today, what is the scripture commanding us to do? It's commanding us to work hard for our employee our employers. Work hard, diligently, not eye service. That is, we don't work hard when they're watching, and then as soon as they leave, decide, oh, well, now I'm going to take a coffee break for the next two hours. No, we work hard all the time. Why? Because, say so he says right there in the end of verse 24, you are serving the Lord Christ. You are serving the Lord Christ. The reason why we are to work hard for our masters, for our employers, for our bosses, for whatever, is because in that, God accepts the services rendered to our master as the services rendered to himself. When we serve our bosses, we are serving Jesus. That's not a motivational speech from me. That's Paul's words. When we serve our bosses, we are serving the Lord Christ. When we serve, can I insert for bosses, can I insert when we serve our church, when we serve our session, when we serve our government, we are serving the Lord Christ. Assuming we're not doing something sinful in our service. Verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. There's two things here. First of all, if we are serving, and we are slipshot in our serving, if we are working for our masters, and we do not work hard, and we are lazy, the wrongdoer, if we are the wrongdoer, we'll be paid back for the wrong we've done. Likewise, if Paul now is beginning to make a transition to talking about masters, and he's saying, if masters are abusing their servants, if masters are abusing their workers, that doesn't mean you don't still work hard. That also means that you must still work hard, but know that the master is going to get his penalty for that from God. Vengeance is mine, declares God. And that leads us to chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven. I don't know how many of you have been masters in your life or are masters in your life in some way. And by that, I mean, are you in a position where you have people who work for you in some sense? I don't think I've ever been a master. I don't think so. Maybe some of you have. Serve on a session? Deacon? Are you a boss at work somewhere? we have people under you there's all kinds of ways that this could be fit in maybe maybe as a master you're simply a parent and you have subordinates your children and Paul here for the masters for those who have people who work for you if you will treat your servants justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven we as as masters are commanded to treat them well treat our servants well treat our employees well treat our congregants well fill in the blank <clears throat> we're commanded to do that all right so those are th- paul's 3 major relationships that he's dealing with here and you can see all of these as we talked about the fifth commandment in our ten commandment series all of these kind of fall into that category this is this is an exegesis of the principle of, of the fifth commandment of how inferiors and superiors in authority are treated how they treat each other now i recognize that there's a lot of stuff in this passage that is extremely countercultural in our own day particularly the stuff about what the wives are to do in the God-given marriage roles, All right? the, our culture does not like this. It fights it hard. Feminism has tried to basically take a sledgehammer to the Scriptures on these things. And there's, you know, there's a lot of things that feminism has done well. You know, there was trouble and inequality and injustice for women for a long time, and that they did help to correct some of that. But really, they threw the baby out with the bathwater because the scripture, while it commands the equality of women and men under God, it also gives different roles to men and women. We don't erase those. They are not from the culture. They are from the word of God. We must follow them. This is the key to a godly marriage, a happy marriage, when we do it the way God says it. This is the key to raising great, godly kids. Not a guarantee, of course, but this is what God commands us to do. This is how we be faithful to him. This is how we behave as bosses and employees. I think carefully about this. As we, uh, as we close here, I want to pray. And I want to pray for each of these relationships as we go through them here. So let's, uh, let's close. Lord Jesus, um, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your clear guidance here on how we are to order our relationships. Lord, we don't order our relationships based on whatever we want. We order them based on what you want. And so help us to understand your word here. Lord, firstly, we pray for wives. Lord, help all of the wives to heed your word here, to honor the leadership of the husband that you have ordained. Lord, help them to be humble and to do that to your glory. Lord, help the husbands who are commanded here to love their wives and to not be harsh with them. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us not to be selfish. Help us to be godly. Help us to put them first. Help us to lead our families to you in your glory. Lord, we pray for children. Work in them the knowledge of yourself and the knowledge of your word so that they are obedient to their parents. Lord, we pray for parents too. Help us, well, not us, but help parents to not provoke their children. Help them to be patient and forbearing and helpful and always drawing them to you, your word. Lord, we pray for servants, for employees, for congregants, or For whoever else finds themselves in a position where they serve an authority, Lord, help them to work hard. Help us to work hard as we serve those people you placed over us. Help us not to be lazy or giving eye service, but help us to work diligently and for your glory. And Lord, finally, we pray for masters, for those in authority. Give them wisdom to treat their subordinates with justice. And fairness, not to use their authority as a license for tyranny, but as a way to glorify you and to serve others. Lord, we pray for these relationships, and most of all, Lord, we pray that when we fail, when we don't obey your word, when we sin, Lord, that you would comfort us, you would bring us to your gospel, you would bring us to yourself, to your cross, and we would see that you paid for all of the times that we failed to fulfill these commands. I pray that recognizing the payment that you made for us and the forgiveness that you offer, that we would be motivated to then better serve you and to follow what you've commanded us to do as your people. Lord, prepare us now to hear the preaching of your word and to worship you. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.